Season two, episode two of Black History Moments. My name is Shakira and I am the host here. Today's episode, we will be discussing sexual assault, violence, and drug usage. So I wanted to give you all a trigger warning before we got started. But this episode is covering the life and story of one of the most infamous jazz singers of American history, and her name was Billie Holiday. Today, I did want to let you all know that I actually recorded a video to coincide with this podcast episode. The video has pictures and videos that I put together that I compiled so you can listen to the podcast and also see the visuals that go along with it so you can put faces to names if you want to watch it instead of listening to it. But you're more than welcome to continue to listen to the episode or you can click the link in the description of the podcast and you can watch it. It's up to you. But let's get started. All right, so Billie Holiday was born Eleanor Fagan. That was her name at birth, and she was born April 7th, 1915. Now, Eleanor, she was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and her parents' names were Sadie Fagan and Clarence Holiday. Her mother was a teenager at the time that she gave birth to Billie, which was really shunned upon at the time. Again, this is the early 1900s, and to be an unwed mother and a teenager at that it was hard for her. So when Billy was a toddler, her and her mother moved to Baltimore, Maryland. And for a brief period of time, her parents did get married, Clarence and Sadie, although they were young, but it didn't last very long. And so she didn't really have a relationship with her father growing up because he chose to pursue a career in jazz. He wanted to be a jazz guitarist. And he actually ended up being a part of Fletcher Henderson's band. And he had a pretty successful moderately successful jazz career as a jazz guitarist that he went to pursue but he left Eleonora Billy and her mother Sadie alone and so her mother being so young she didn't have much money now I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you how she arrived at the name Billy Holiday even though it wasn't until later in her life but I just want to go ahead and tell you now so that I can start referring to her as Billy instead of Eleonora so you won't get confused because this episode does feature a lot of names and I don't want to overload you and bombard you with names throughout the entire episode so she arrived at the first name Billy because it was paying homage to her favorite actress at the time and it was an actress by the name of Billy Dove so she took the name Billy and she started using that as her first name and although she didn't have her father's name at birth, remember her name was Eleanor Fagan. She had her mother's last name. She adopted her father's last name, Holiday. And so that's how she arrived at the name Billie Holiday. So now that that's out of the way, let's continue. So Billie started having problems in school. She would skip school. And sometimes when her mother would work a lot, she would leave her in the care of other people. So when Billy was 10 years old, she was sexually assaulted by a neighbor. And after that, she was sent to a reform school named House of the Good Shepherd. And it was a terrible school. I'm sorry, but it was a terrible school. The school was known for how bad it was to the students. Um, in her autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues, she says, quote, For years, I used to dream about it and wake up hollering and screaming. It takes years to get over it. Now, after she exited the reform school, she went back and started living with her mother, but she still had issues in school. She dropped out of school when she was in the fifth grade, and she started making money by running errands for a local brothel in Baltimore, Maryland. 
Sadie, Billy's mother, she moved to New York because she was trying to find better jobs for them. And it wasn't long after that that Billy moved to New York with her, and that was in 1929. So when Billy moved with her mother, they started to live together in Harlem. Now, at this time, Billy was just 14 years old, and I want to keep um, keep tabs on her age so you can have some context with some of these things that start happening in her life. So she was just 14 years old, and she had this fifth-grade education, and she had no real means of making money, so she turned to sex work. And she did this for about three years before she was arrested, and she actually did a short stint in jail behind it. Now, when she was released, I personally, I like to believe that she was thinking, okay, I have to find something else to do. Like, I have to find another way to make money. And I say that because she started going around to jazz clubs to audition as a dancer. Um, You know who else started out as a dancer before they became a singer, Bessie Smith, Um, which is crazy because do you all remember last week's podcast episode, Ma Rainey? We talked about the life of Ma Rainey and we talked about Bessie Smith being Ma Rainey's mentor, actually mentee. We talked about Bessie Smith being Ma Rainey's mentee and how they developed a friendship over the years. Um, And who did Billie Holiday listen to that helped her develop a love for jazz? Bessie Smith and Louis Armstrong. I don't know, but that's just always so interesting to me how all of these stories overlap in some kind of way. But okay, back to the story. Billie goes out to audition as a dancer at the Log Cabin Club. And at this time, that club was run by Jerry Preston. And it was one of those popular clubs during the Harlem Renaissance era. And so she shows up for this audition and he's like, okay, you came here to be a dancer, so dance. And so she starts dancing and he was like, okay, you're terrible, something else. And so she, you know, she wasn't a quitter and she was like, okay, I can sing too. And he said, okay, he's a man of second chances, so sing. She starts singing and she was amazing, amazing. Billy was so good when she started singing in this club that the customers that were inside the club at the time put their drinks down. They stopped drinking so they could start listening to her sing. And from that moment forward, it was just off to the races. He hired her on the spot and he was paying her $18 a week to come and perform at nights at the club. But because word got around of her unique voice, she started performing at other clubs around Harlem as well. Now, in 1933, Billy was 18 years old and she was performing at a nightclub like usual when a producer heard her singing. He was in attendance at this club and his name was John Goodman. And although John Goodman's name may not sound familiar to you, he was instrumental in launching the careers of several of our favorites. Think Bruce Springsteen. Think Bob Dylan, think Aretha Franklin, Count Basie, the likes, and more. So he's at this club and he hears her sing and he's like, I need to get her on a record with Benny Goodman. Now, Benny was nicknamed the King of Swing at this time and he was right on the verge of superstardom. He was popular. So John goes and talks to Billy at this club and he gets her to agree to do a few songs And it was up from there. She took off. So a quote from her website says, 
The Holiday's career accelerated recording hit after hit with pianist-arranger Teddy Wilson. Simultaneously, in 1936, she began a legendary string of collaborations with tenor sax giant Lester Young, whose complimentary tone was a perfect trading partner for Billy. They became the best of friends and inseparable, legendary musical partners, even living together with Billy's mother for a time. Lester would famously christian her Lady Day, and she would call him the Prez. By the time Holiday joined Kansas City's phenomenal Count Basie Orchestra for tours in 1937, she was an unstoppable force, suited for a top billing across the United States. In 1938, Artie Shaw invited her to front his orchestra, making Billy the first black woman to work with a white band, an impressive and courageous accomplishment. End quote. Now, while she was touring with Count Basie, Billie Holiday was making money for the time period in question, that is. So she was making about $14 a day, which was almost unheard of for a lot of black women performers. However, even though the money was good, there were issues with other things because Billie still dealt with issues as far as racial discrimination is concerned. She was still a black woman. It did not matter how famous or popular she was. One time while she was touring with Count Basie and his band in Detroit, a theater manager insisted that she blacken her face so that the audience would not mistake her for white because she had a brighter tone complexion. And the theater manager didn't want the audience to get angry that she was performing with black musicians, assuming they mistook her for being a white woman. Also, while she was touring with Artie Shaw's mostly white band in the South, um, the South was still segregated, of course, early 1900s, and it was hard to find a restaurant where all of them could eat and they didn't have to be separated because of their race. And dealing with all of these issues really caused her to leave these tours and groups because it was just too much to deal with. So buckle up, folks, because here's where things start to get tricky. And this is the part that they don't tell us about that often. You actually have to go and dig for what we're about to get into. So to really understand the depth of what happened to Billie Holiday, I have to tell you about something else that was happening simultaneously. And that thing was prohibition. Now you may be wondering, what does prohibition have to do with Billie Holiday? And I'm glad you asked. So here's a quick history lesson. Prohibition was the ban on alcohol that lasted from 1920 to 1933 here in the United States. Now, during Prohibition, there was a man by the name of Harry Anslinger. Now, Harry was the head of a teeny tiny agency here, and the name of that agency was the Department of Prohibition. So the Department of Prohibition's sole purpose, their main focus, their only focus, was the prohibition of alcohol. Well... After alcohol prohibition went out of the window in 1933, Harry, he tries to save his department. He tries to save his job, of course. Right? Who would it? So the department transformed to its new name, which was the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. See, Harry, being the astute man that he thought himself to be, he was like, okay, we can't police alcohol anymore. So what can we move on to? Oh, drugs, of course. So on the surface level, you may be thinking, well, what's wrong with that? And here's what's wrong with that. Harry hated two things, jazz music and black people. There are official memos that were sent throughout this bureau that used the N-word. Um, Harry was not shy about it. And 
he really just despised black people in these memos. And because he hated jazz music as well, um, black jazz musicians became his main target and his main focus. A quote from an article I was reading says, Anslinger looked out over a scene filled with rebels like Charlie Parker, Louis Armstrong, and Thelonious Monk. And as the journalist Larry Sloman recorded, he longed to see them all behind bars. He wrote to all the agents he had sent to follow them and instructed, please prepare all cases in your jurisdiction involving musicians in violation of the marijuana laws. We will have a great national roundup arrest of all such persons on a single day. I will let you know what day. His advice on drug raids to his men, his agents, was always shoot first. Now, Harry, he even told U.S. congressmen that, quote, his crackdown would affect not the good musicians, but the jazz type. And I really wish I knew, like me as a person, Shakira, I really wish I knew what he had against jazz music so badly. But anyway, so the black jazz musicians were harder for him to crack down on than he thought. Um, they would never tell on each other. Whenever one would get caught, they would never snitch on another one. And the group that would be out, they would prepare their funds. They would get their money together to always bail whoever it was that had got arrested out of jail. And because of this, the U.S. Treasury Department was like, okay, listen, Harry, we know what you're trying to do, but it seems like you're really wasting your time with this. So Harry, he decides that instead of focusing on an entire community of black jazz musicians, he thinks, okay, let's focus on the most famous female one. And who was that? Billie Holiday. Now, Billie at this time, she had been inspired by and also disturbed by the lynchings that were going on across the South. And there was a poem written by Abel Maripole. He was a Jewish high school teacher. And that is how Strange Fruit came about. He was actually behind that song. So one night in 1939, Billie performs this song in front of a mixed audience um, in New York's Cafe Society. So the song is a hit. And Harry, he starts hearing whispers about this song. And he's like, how dare this black woman speak out about issues and injustices facing her people and people that look like her? How dare she? So not long after this, Billy married a trombonist named James Monroe. Now, at this time, when she married James, she was already struggling with heavy drinking. She was drinking a lot. And her husband, Jimmy, he was a known heroin addict. And it's said that he is the person that introduced her to heroin and her addiction became so strong that most of her money started to go towards her addiction. So Harry, being the head of the Bureau of Narcotics, he heard rumors that Billy was addicted to heroin. And he's like, this is perfect. This is exactly what I've been waiting for. I've been waiting for an opportunity to get her and this is it. So he hires an agent to go undercover in Harlem. The agent's name was Jimmy Fletcher, and Jimmy, this black agent, he wasn't even allowed upstairs in the bureau because, remember, Harry hates black people. He does not like black people. He doesn't care that he's hired you. He still does not like you or your kind. And he only hired him because he knew that no black person in Harlem at this time would trust a white person coming into the community. Like, it just was not going to happen. 
So during this time, Billy and her husband separated and her mother passed away, which really took a toll on her. She started drinking more and she started using drugs, more heroin, and she was grieving the loss of her mother and also the dismantling of a marriage. But mostly people said that it was the loss of her mother that really took a toll on her. The agent goes into Harlem and eventually he took a liking to Billy and Billy took a liking to him as well. And even though she eventually did find out why he was there, she still befriended him. And she was raided a few times as a result of that agent being there, you know, on her tail, for lack of better terms. But her real issues started with her second husband, who was named Louis McKay. Louis was physically and verbally abusive to Billy. So much so that they would often have to tape up her ribs before sending her out on stage to perform because he would have beaten her so badly. So she was afraid to go to the police, but she did eventually cut him off. And when she cut him off, that made him upset. So he takes a trip to D.C. to meet with Harry Anslinger because he wants to get back at her. And he helps him come up with a plan to set Billy up. So when she was busted again, she was placed on trial and she was actually sentenced to a year and a day in a West Virginia prison. She said that she didn't sing once when she was in prison. When she was there, she served about 10 months before she was released. But by being convicted, they stripped her of what was called a cabaret card. And the cabaret card was a license that you had to have in New York State to be able to perform in any club that served alcohol, which was every jazz club in America. Now, this was bad because that's where she made a lot of her money, and that's also where she enjoyed performing the most. Like, yeah, she was performing in Carnegie Hall and these other concert venues, major concert venues at that, but she found her joy when she was performing in these club circuits. But there was still a place that she could perform in San Francisco. Now, hold that thought about San Francisco. Um, at the same time, Harry Anslinger, he got a new agent at the Bureau, and this agent's name was George White. George hated Billy. I don't know what it was about. Actually, I do know what it was about her that had everyone so uptight, but I won't go into it. Anyway, George hated Billy, and there's a quote from George that says, she flaunted her way of living with her fancy coats and fancy automobiles and her jewelry and her gowns. She was the big lady wherever she went. That was George speaking about Billie Holiday. So one day while Billie is in San Francisco for a performance, here's what happened. And I'll just read you an excerpt and it says, when he came for her on a rainy day at the Mark Twain Hotel in San Francisco without a search warrant, Billie was sitting in white silk pajamas in her room. This was one of the few places she could still perform, and she badly needed the money. She insisted to the police that she had been clean for over a year. George White's men declared that they had found opium stashed in a waste paper basket next to a side room and the kit for shooting heroin in the room, and they charged her with possession. But when the details were looked at later, there seemed to be something odd. One, a waste paper basket seems an improbable place to keep a stash, and the kit for shooting heroin was never entered into evidence by the cops. They claimed that they had left it at the scene. So the jurors, these charges, the jurors saw right through it, and they acquitted her of all these issues. But she still faced harassment from the Bureau. They were not letting up, 
and it was a great source of anxiety and pressure for her. And they wanted her to stop performing the song Strange Fruit, and she refused. At this time, I don't know if you all know, but do you know how sometimes you can look up an old song and you find like three or four different singers that covered the same song? So this was happening at the time, but the other performers that had started performing Strange Fruit, they refused to perform it anymore because of the harassment that Billy was facing from the Bureau of Narcotics. But Billy was like, no, I'm still going to perform this song. Now, when Billy was 40 years old, she collapsed one day and she was taken to a nearby hospital. At the hospital, they were like, oh, she's a drug addict and they turned her away. But one of the ambulance drivers, he recognized her as Billie Holiday. And he was like, oh my gosh, we have to take her somewhere. So they ended up taking her to a public ward to receive treatment. But while she was there, the doctors told her that she had a lot of really bad health issues that she needed to address sooner rather than later. She had liver issues from the drinking that she had been doing. She had respiratory and cardiac issues, and she also had really bad leg ulcers because she had started using heroin again. Harry Anslinger, I know you're tired of hearing his name because I'm tired of talking about him, but he is just, ugh, I just really need to drive home how terrible he was. So, Harry sent narcotics agents to the hospital when he found out that Billy was there. And when they were there, they said that they found less than one eighth of an ounce of heroin in a tinfoil envelope. But here's the thing. They said that it was hanging on. Follow me here. They said that it was hanging on a nail on the wall, six feet from the bottom of her bed. And that was an impossible place for her to reach. She couldn't even reach it. So you can draw your own conclusion there. More than likely, it was placed. But that wasn't all they did. They took her comic books, her radio, her flowers that people had given her, her record player. They handcuffed her to her bed. And they also stationed two police officers outside of her door. It wasn't like she could go anywhere anyway. But they still had these guards, these police officers on guard in front of her hospital room. Also, they had orders made so that she couldn't have any visitors coming to visit her without a written permit. And her friends were told that they could not see her while she was inside this hospital. So one of her friends came and she told them, you know, this is illegal to arrest someone who is on the hospital's critical list. And their response to her was, the problem was solved. We took her off the critical list, even though she was still critical. And Billy had a really great set of friends, and I really feel bad for them because they really tried everything that they could to keep her here, but it just wasn't enough against Harry and the influence that he had. So her friends were able to get a doctor to go into the hospital and prescribe her methadone, which was used for treating people with heroin addictions. She was given methadone for 10 days and she started doing better. She started gaining weight. She looked a lot better. She was talking better. But all of a sudden, after the 10 days, it stopped. So one day, her friend was finally able to get inside the room and Billy was in a panic when she noticed her friend there. And she told her, quote, they're going to kill me. They're going to kill me in here. Don't let them. With that, 
Her friend went out and spread the word to the neighborhood and the community, and protesters started showing up at the hospital pleading with Harry and asking him, you know, please let her go. And there was also a reverend, his name was Eugene Callender. Um, he had a facility for people that struggled with addiction, and he tries to get them to let Billy go to the facility so that they can nurse her back to health, and they refused. They took a mug shot of her in her hospital bed, and they also fingerprinted her there in her hospital bed. They questioned her without allowing her to have a lawyer present. It was just so unethical, but we know what we were dealing with at this time. So, unfortunately, Billy died there in that bed with two officers outside the door on July 17, 1959, and she was 44 years old. At the time she passed, she had $750 strapped to her leg, and it was said that she had it strapped to her leg because she was going to give that to the nurses as a thank you for taking care of her during the time that she was in the hospital. And that $750 was all she had left, along with $0.44 cents that she had in a bank account. To go from one of the most popular and influential jazz singers of our time, period, to only having 44 cents in the bank. Man, it's just, wow. So at her funeral, more than 3,000 people showed up and there were police cars everywhere. Now the police cars weren't there per se to pay respect or homage to her. They were there because they thought that the crowd would start a riot because of the way that the police treated her during her time in the hospital. And Eugene, that reverend who pleaded with Harry to ask him if she could go to his facility to receive the treatment that she needed. At her funeral, he said that this was not supposed to happen to her. She was supposed to be here until she was 80 years old, but she was denied that privilege because she wasn't given the medical treatment that she needed. So in 2000, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and also... She has an autobiography entitled Lady Sings the Blues. I highly suggest you check it out. If this story was interesting to you, you can learn a little bit more about Billie and her life. With that being said, I hope that you all enjoyed hearing the story of Billie Holiday. And I hope that you learned a little bit more about her life and story um, and her legacy. And I hope that you will take a second to listen to Strange Fruit today. And not just listen to it, but if you can watch her perform it on YouTube, I honestly feel like it'll do something to you. Every now and then I go back to that video on YouTube and watch it because it's just, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. But remember that you two are Black History and I will see you guys next week in a new episode of Black History Moments. Bye. Suppose you want somebody, but you ain't got nobody. You only got a gleam in your eye.